0: You're listening to the Traffic and Funnels Show.
1: Hey guys, this is Alan, producer of the TNF Show. Today's clip comes from the Life Worth Chasing Podcast, where Taylor chats with Chase Maher about scaling business, TNF's origins, and real estate investing. Also, if you haven't done so already, visit TrafficandFunnels.com/slash subscribe to get a free gift from us, and also get access to special deals on our next level paid products. Without further ado, let's get to it. So Taylor, why don't you share a little bit about who you are and what you do before we get started?
0: Amazing. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Founded a company called Traffic and Funnels in 2015 with my business partner, who's on the opposite side of the world uh, to you. He's in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we built that company. It took us two and a half years to hit seven figures in that company. We ended up migrating into the sales consultancy world a little bit with a different company. And exactly like most professionals who hit success relatively quickly, we realized that we didn't have a plan for the money that we were making. So we got good at making it. This is where people stop. It's like they spend all this time studying how to make money because nobody wants to be poor. Nobody wants to struggle with that. But then they spend no time studying what to do with it. And so we see this like curve where people make a lot of money and then they get to the end of their life where they should be focused on legacy and impact and thriving and all of these things. And they end up having to work past their prime and their life kind of retreats financially. And so we started a company called Wealth Cap Holdings and uh, got into the real estate game and it will buy, we do 20 to 30 houses a month, take all of the cash from the cash flow Businesses move them into uh, real estate, and at some point, you know, we'll we will uh, have to divest and diversify a little bit. But most of our money right now is invested into cash-producing real estate, single-family. We got lucky with COVID because everybody pre-COVID wanted multifamily, and now multifamily is getting crushed because nobody wants to sit inside of a you know 300-unit apartment complex underneath a bunch of people who have COVID-19. So we kind of got lucky because people are moving into the rural suburb areas and that's where we're invested. So
1: sweet man. Well, tell me a little bit before we get into traffic and funnels, scaling a business online and what wealth cap holdings means to you. I'm curious, tell me a little bit about before you started traffic and funnels. What's your background? How did you come up with that idea? And and where did you really build the skill set and the framework to scale a company like that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. When I was as early as I can remember, I wanted to be a pastor. So I grew up in church. We actually grew up in Louisiana, so grew up in the South, moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And I just wanted to be on staff at a church. I was involved in music and learned to play the piano. And, you know, I just wanted to be a a preacher. My mom said that one of the first times she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said I wanted to be a cowboy preacher. So we're not just talking a preacher, but a preacher to cowboys, probably was watching too many cowboy movies but uh man I got that I got that wish that came true I became a uh a staff member of a church in Memphis and I think it was the story of how most most people experience this that I've talked to is like you you want this one thing and then you get it and you realize it's not not what you really wanted which is actually a gift because if you pay attention you're able to kind of flip all of the experiences you've had into success in another industry. And anyways, I didn't like it. It was intense. It was hard. I was not cut out to be a vocational minister. I like you know being able to buy food and live in places that have you know roof over your head, which is not typical. You don't make a lot of money in the ministry. And so I started exploring ways that I could make a, an income outside of that. Ended up stumbling upon a gig in property management, which, you know, there's all these things you can do in real estate and property management is about the worst thing that you can do in real estate. So I started at the very, very bottom with property management. I was just like explaining to tenants why we couldn't fix their toilet. And uh, it was, it was awful. I mean, it was intense, but I ended up managing about 6,000 single family homes. And I learned how to communicate from that job because you're having to deal with very, very negative people with negative experiences and you're having to take care of them while protecting the company and protecting them. And it was this like, it was this awful experience that, but it it did a couple of things It got me out of having to work at a church, which I didn't want to do anymore. And it also trained me on just how to communicate, how to communicate to different types of people while I was there. My wife, who's a hairstylist, I didn't know what entrepreneurship was. I didn't know that you could work for yourself. I envy the people who are like, man, when I was seven, I was selling lemonade. I was like, I'm going to one day own a business.
1: Do you, do you mind sharing around like what year this is? I'm curious.
0: 2013.
1: Okay, yeah. got it.
0: Not that long ago. Right. 2013 into 2014. But my wife, we had been married for two years and she was a hairstylist. So she made her own income and she didn't work for anyone. I was like, man, that would be so cool if I could do that, you know, mm. if I could do my own thing and make an income without having a boss or without you know having to report to someone. And we went to the beach 2014, we went to Orange, uh, Orange Beach, Alabama. And before we got in the for the road trip, we talked about her business. And she's like, I would love more clients. And I think you should figure out how to get me more clients. I was like, mm. cool. Well, shout see. out to the wife. She's responsible for a lot of good things in my life. We'll we'll put it that way. That's good. So it's like, I'm going to look up how to do this, and uh, I think I can figure it out. And I've always been the type of person who, if I get into it, you know, I'll study it like a crazy person. If I'm not into it, then it's it's dead to me. I don't even care, which is why I kind of struggled through school. And I think this is a textbook trait of most entrepreneurial individuals. It's like if you're not passionate about it, it's like who cares about it? Yeah, Who cares about it? So – I picked up a book by a guy named John Carlton, who you've probably heard of, and it was the Entrepreneur's Guide to Getting Your Together. Together. So it wasn't even really a marketing book. It was just John Carlton's you know, manifesto about how he got his life together. And I started reading through this guy's book, and while I was on the trip in Alabama, because of John Carleton's book, I bought a course by a guy named Todd Brown. And you're probably familiar with Todd Brown as well. And started learning about like funnels and marketing. We get back from the trip. I'm all lit up. Like I can do this. We can figure it out. We buy a direct mailing list in Memphis for like two or three zip codes. It was 200 bucks, 250 bucks, something. It, w- it was not that expensive. But I remember I had to borrow money from Lindsay to do it. But I was like, I promise I think I can make it work. I just had all of this blind enthusiasm, you know. Perfect. And uh, we sent four or 500 letters out in the mail And I remember sitting in the living room in Memphis and it's actually Cordova, a suburb of Memphis, a a small, nasty little apartment. We didn't make any money and I'm stamping envelopes, licking them, putting them in the mail, 500 of them. And we sent them out and uh, a week goes by, nothing happens. Two weeks goes by, nothing happens. And she gets a phone call from one of them and she ended up picking up like three clients and I was able to do the math that they teach in direct response and be like, you know, this client will make you X amount of money over the year and we only paid $250 for it. Oh, my goodness. We're freaking rich. We can do this again and again and again. And at that point, my vision became like if I can just get my wife enough clients to replace my day job, I'll quit my day job. I'll stay at home. And I was like, do nothing. That was my vision, which is like hilarious now because – People, I'm like, you know, I have so much energy. It's like I'm a force of nature in things now because I have vision for it. But my vision when we started was literally, I just want to retire myself. I'm 25 years old, you know, 25, 26. But once I got into it and I fell down the rabbit hole and I started learning marketing and learning how it worked, and then got into human psychology and then met Chris from a mastermind and I started doing freelance and uh, I quit my job about 6 months later because I had picked up a client that replaced my income from the job. So, I I don't have one of these exciting stories I feel like where it's like, "Man, I just I took the leap of faith and I quit the job and I went out on my own." I didn't do it that way. I'm so risk averse even today, even with the way that we we invest. Like, I've studied all the ways that you can lose and rather than becoming fearful, I've just tried to mitigate all of them. And so one of the first things that I that I refused to do was just quit my job and live off of a credit card until I figured it out. I didn't want to jump off the mountain and and sprout wings before I, before I died because there's a chance you could die. And I'm like, that's not acceptable. So I waited until I pulled in a client and that I'm even just learning this for the first time telling you this, like this is where kind of some of my ethos comes from. You can see it from early on is like the point of life is really to go as far as you can without risking death. And so if you know the ways that are, that could take you out of the game You can hedge yourself against them and stay away from them. And I think you can be risk-averse and still growth-oriented at the same time. And that's when you get into that, that's why our businesses have, have flourished. Every single business we have is at eight figures now. And we've done it in a way that doesn't have any risk to it. Beautiful.
1: I think you're being humble, and I appreciate that. That is an incredible story. I pulled a lot from that. But the two main things is, one, I don't think many people know Alabama has a beach. And uh, no, in all seriousness, though, for everybody listening, if you're not familiar with Taylor, I do have a, a predominantly real estate podcast. And you're not new to real estate, but you're really well known in the marketing space, for sure. And so for people listening, if you're not familiar with Taylor, which I'm sure many of you are, Taylor is by far one of the top, like new age, new era marketers, really impressive. And so if it's cool with you, I'd love to dive into Traffic and Funnels and what that's all about, how you scaled it, what your, your goal and focus is there. So tell me about the start of Traffic and Funnels and what Traffic and Funnels is.
0: Yeah, me and Chris, Chris was doing paid advertising and I was building funnels. One of the first things that I learned when I got into freelancing is that I quickly became impatient with competing against everyone else. I've always thought of myself as a competitive person, but I didn't realize how competitive until I'm on the phone with someone and they're like, well, what's the difference between you and this person? I'm like, I will kill that person. That's the difference between, you know, so I had to figure out a way to do that that didn't freak people out. (laughs) I feel like you're really weird. And I had to figure out a way to do it and without lowering my prices as well. So I niched into, and this is one of our first discoveries, Dan Kennedy, Talks about there's riches and niches and niching into. But when you look at niching in the 80s and the 90s, it was different. You know, you became a specialist because copywriters had to learn so much that they didn't have a choice. You know, you had to be a health copywriter. You couldn't be a health copywriter and simultaneously write a -a magalog for uh, small caps or stocks. It wasn't possible. Some of these copywriters know more about health than doctors because they go so deep into their niche. But I sensed that what I needed to learn how to do was niche into more of a problem, not necessarily an industry. So I coined this phrase, the infusion soft copywriter. And that was like my first big win was I was able to work with clients in the health market. I was able to work in the financial market, online advertising. It didn't matter what their industries were per se. I was able to grab them because... If it was a competition between copywriter A and copywriter B, you use Infusionsoft, and B is an expert in Infusionsoft, it's not a competition anymore. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, And at the time, Infusionsoft was like the main direct response thing. Like everybody used Infusionsoft. I met Chris in a mastermind because he saw some of my work. I've been in freelance at this point for about six months. This is uh, six months full time. This is like July of 2015. And we started referring clients back and forth because all of my clients needed leads. If they didn't have leads, the funnel didn't work. And all of his clients, if they didn't have a good funnel and a good product, then they wouldn't keep paying him because they couldn't monetize the leads. So we started sharing clients back and forth. And we were like, let's just start an agency. We can do all this under one, one roof and we could probably build efficiencies from being under one roof. So we took three or four clients, done for you. And then we were just like, what if we didn't have to do done for you anymore? You know, what if we can do like consulting? One of the things people were asking me at the time, and I was connected in with Ryan LeBec, and he was connected in with like Amy Porterfield, like the big names in 2015, these guys were the the kings of the market. One of the things people wanted to know is man, I had a waiting list that was eight months long, and people would pay 50% to get on my waiting list and not start working for six months down the road. People were like, How is that possible? how are you doing this? And uh, it was part of it was accidental. And part of it was just my personality. But I had all of these front end systems that people had to go through, they had to jump through hoops, they had to apply to get on the phone with me. At one point in time, they had to pay money to get on the phone with me. So I was instantly different. You know, every other copywriter is posting in job boards, and they're like, I'll do this for free, whatever. And I'm like, you can pay to have a 30 minute conversation with me. And if if I like you, then I'll apply that money towards being a client. And if not, then I'm just going to keep it and you can't be a client. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very different frame right from the very beginning. And that allowed me to charge more per client. I remember the first time I made really good money, like really good money. I just didn't want to take this client. I didn't want to. I was busy and I didn't want them. And so I was like, rather than saying no, I'm just going to charge them 20 grand and they're going to say no paypal me 10 grand, 50% up front to start in six months. And I was like, well, shoot, yeah, I gotta do the client. And I was like, let's do it again. And, and before long, it was like, I was starting 20, 30K per project and it was like, people wanted to know how. And so me and Chris were like, what if we could do some consulting for freelancers? Yo, what's up crew? Taylor Welch here. And if you're a fan of this show and you wanna get a little bit deeper in your commitment to your business and your growth, and your revenue head over to traffic slash subscribe as a subscriber you're going to get a free gift from us just to help you grow your business and it's our way of saying thank you for joining the family our exclusive offers and deals usually show up to this subscriber community as well so you'll get first dibs access on anything new anything exciting and most of the time that means profitability for you visit traffic slash subscribe i'll see you on the inside my friends Have you ever felt like you work, 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 you're constantly chasing something, but you wake up one day and you feel like you've done all of this effort and you haven't really gotten a good return out of it, but you can't give up because you put in all of this effort and so you get stuck inside of this hamster wheel that the entrepreneur gets stuck into. One of the things that I learned pretty early on was that you can run really, really fast. You can be a really hard worker. You can be not lazy, not cheap, but you can be running in the wrong direction and where is it going to take you? Not only do you have to have the mentorship, but you have to know what not to do. We have this cool training that is actually going to teach you the things that you should avoid in your business and how to replace them with the things that actually will work to get you more clients, better clients, happier clients, more money. A lot of times people think business is about service, but no, business is about generating profit. If you can create service, but you can't generate profit, you go bankrupt. But how do you do both at the same time? How do I say I love who I'm serving, the clients that I have are getting great results, and I'm making a lot of money doing it? I'll teach you all of those things in this training. It's free. And maybe one day you'll be able to uh, have a team of your own and an office of your own and maybe even have some nice cars. We'll see. Visit trafficandfunnels.com holygrail.
1: That's trafficandfunnels.com holygrail. There's a lot of takeaways in here. You stumbled across like the takeaway sale. You stumbled across apply to work with me and you made yourself different than the competition. They don't even know if you're better. You're just different.
0: Yes. I'm sure you
1: are better, but you established, you put yourself on a pedestal.
0: Yeah, and so the heuristic helped me because people just made a natural assumption that I was better. Mm -hmm. Because if I wasn't, why was I charging money? Just to have a phone call. Exactly. And so... Man, we we connected, we started doing Done For You. And then we were like, let's let's just test out consulting offer where we'll teach people how we've built, how our systems are. I was doing about 30K a month as a freelancer. Chris was doing a li- about the same as a freelancer himself. And so we had 15 or 20 conversations with random people that just I posted online and did something that's called a two-step. Now we have training on it, but it was at the time, it was just, hey, here's what we're doing. Do you want to talk about it? and we enrolled three clients for $3,000 each for us just to teach them. And uh I remember Chris was out of town, I was going to a wedding, and it was like a Friday and I had enrolled our third client for 3k and I'm like we just we just made 9 grand and we don't have to do anything. Like it was an epiphany. Like I don't have to build a funnel, we don't have to drive ads. Like I mean we have to teach them obviously. We have to do consulting. I was like, man, we're basically like freaking rich dude we just made nine (laughs) grand if you look at the economics of our time we were used to working for like 80 dollars an hour because of how labor intensive the done for you space was i'm like dude we just like 10x our revenue per hour you know Mm -hmm. and it blossomed from there we didn't take any money out of the business for the first four months four or five months all of that nine grand went into paid traffic Mm -hmm. and then the next month i think we did like 35 grand. All 35 went into paid traffic. Then the next month, we did like 60. And by, I think, the fourth month, so we started in September. So September, October, November, December. So the fifth month was January. Did $127,000 in revenue. I took my wife to Red Lobster that night to celebrate because that's what rich people do is they go to Red Lobster and they eat those cheddar biscuits.
1: I was like, man, buy
0: buy anything you want. You can get the crab legs. You can get two. I don't even care. We just made a 100 grand. We're so rich. And then the next level of resistance hit because I realized we had to do it again Mm. because we're not going backwards. We we have to do it again. There was all this pressure. There was this new level of stress that I was not used to. It was what I was used to my whole life was the stress of not having money. And for the first time, January 2016, I was introduced to the stress and the pressure of not not having money but feeling boxed in like – I have to do this again. And I don't really know how we even did it this month. Like, how do we repeat this? You know, we did $44,000 February after $127,000 in January. And uh, that was painful, but it was a great learning lesson. And it taught us that just because you can do it once, if you don't identify attribution, anybody can get lucky. But the differences between a professional and an elite athlete and somebody who's just getting started is that Kobe Bryant watched the tapes every single game. So and what is he hunting for? He's hunting for attribution. He wants to know what position was his leg in that caused him to miss that layup. He's not interested in just looking at the scoreboard. And so for us, what we learned is that every single win we have and every single loss we encounter, we need to have attribution because if we cannot tie it back to a cause, then the effect will always be random. And from that ethos, we started building the systems and the operational leverage there's there's people don't realize that there's there's financial leverage, which is like man well we when we talk about real estate on that other podcast, you know you know financial leverage is getting something you did not pay for, which is amazing. Everybody needs more financial leverage. There's operational leverage in business, which is getting something that you did not work for. There are two different types of leverage. And what we, what we started learning was like marketing is the tip of the sphere. It's just the very first level. Underneath that iceberg, you've got operations and you've got systems and you've got cyclical P&Ls and cash flow and capital allocation and all of these things. And so we can kind of skip over or go through that. But I would say the main reason that TNF was was able to grow so quickly is we went all in at one thing at a time. We went all in on marketing when we could, and we just tried to raise that bar as fast as, we, as was possible. And then we replaced ourselves and went all in on a second thing. We went all in on that thing until we mastered it. Then we got people to replace ourselves in that area. Then we went to the third thing, went all in on that, mastered it, then got people to replace us. It's like, you know how Elon Musk is digging tunnels like underneath the ground? Have you seen those boring machines? Like in person? Or like, have you just seen like how they work? I've seen like the maps
1: and everything. I mean, it's pretty spectacular.
0: It's the same thing as building a business. This boring machine, what it does is it's got these grinders on the front and it goes through and it removes the earth and moves it back. And then before the end of the machine goes through, it's got to put up concrete or like steel reinforcement mechanisms. Because what happens if if the boring machine just goes through the ground and doesn't put reinforcement behind it, the ground will just crush back on, on the back end of it. Building a business is the same way you got to have all this effort, and you're just clearing out ground. You're taking grounds. But then you have to put reinforcements around it so that you can leave. If you can't leave, it's not a business. It's just a job. You're just stuck. And so we have the same mentality with business. We're going to go in. We're going to put a lot of effort in on the front end. We're going to clean out the ground. We're going to literally grind our way through and build this thing. But then we're going to use operational leverage to reinforce what we were doing with other people. And move on to other things. And TF went from 100 grand a month, to 400 grand a month, to 700 grand a month, to a million, to a million and a half a month. And it's just like, I think we'll just kind of go until we can't go anymore. But that's how it's been. That's about how it's done.
1: That's beautiful, man. And I, I love that you used the example of the Boring Company to kind of illustrate in people's minds what you were talking about. One of the main things that I got out of that is that you went on all in on one thing at a time mastered it, replaced yourself, repeat. My next question was going to be about scaling online. And I don't want to dive into like the tactics, but more so the mindset of scaling online. And that was a lot of it. Is there anything else that you want to add or anything that you might have done differently to scaling a
0: company that fast online? In regards to just online or like in regards to team or just kind of open-ended?
1: Whatever you feel is the most important. Obviously, we don't have a ton of time. I think you and I could probably talk for three hours if we had it. Yeah. But just in regards to scaling an online business like you did, maybe are there, is there anything you would have done differently or different types of leverage points that you would have used that you use now just for anybody else that might be at 20 grand a month or 50 grand a month right now and wants to hit that six figures a month?
0: Yeah, I think probably my biggest area of weakness when I was growing and uh, as we were scaling was probably my expectations. And that sounds so so cheesy and so cliche, but let me explain what I mean. Speed is going to produce mess. It's it's inevitable. You're never going to be able to scale something without a little bit of mess in the middle. Think about somebody playing tennis. The faster you play – the more likely it is that you're going to hit a ball out of bounds or you're going to hit a fault line or something. If you slow down the game, everything can be perfect. But what people want is they want the feeling of slow, controlled growth, but they want the the results of supersonic, rapid scale. And it's like it's, an, it's not possible. And probably the biggest mistakes that I see people making, we have you know, 20,000 clients all over the world. So it's like this is not just coming from me. This is coming from I see people do this all the time, is – they want to build out like systems in every area of their business. And it's like, they want to build all these perfect onboarding systems. And it's like, they have an amazing client success team and they've got just like everything locked down and the Google docs are perfect. And there's table of contents at the top. And it's like, how many clients do you have? And like, well, I did two last month. Man, you haven't earned the right to do any of this because you basically are broke. You don't have any clients. You don't have any revenue. What you need to do. And, and I'm, Our sales mentor uh, director, I just told him yesterday, we're building a sales team for sales mentor, which is the sales consultancy. I was like, I'm going to break you, like literally break you to the point where you have so many clients that you don't know what to do with them. You have to work 100 hours a week, and then you're going to have to replace yourself. We're going to get it fixed, and I'm going to break you again. But that's literal business. That's how you scale. And so your expectations cannot be that I'm going to build this amazing Supersonic speedy scale machine, and I'm gonna do it perfectly. You gotta trust people on your team enough for them to make mistakes. We tell people that today as well. I trust you enough to make the wrong decision. Just don't make the wrong decision three times in a row. You know, we want to grow or we wanna perfect. Do we wanna bulk up or do we want to cut? You can't do those things at the same time. And so, even with our profit margins, there have been times in TF history where our profit margins are negative. Insane. It will make 800 grand and we have a negative profit margin. How is that possible? Well, it's because we're scaling. And our expectations are that we can only do one thing at a time. Even today, we can only do one thing at a time. We can scale or we can cut, but it's almost impossible to do both. And those are the the biggest mistakes I see clients making is they are perfectionistic while at the same time, they want super fast growth. Those two things are, are not possible at the same time. Does that make sense? Absolutely.
1: Little side note question, if you were starting over right now, it's uh, July 2020, we could factor in COVID, but just try to not factor in COVID, just try to factor in the times where we're at with marketing, lead generation, consulting, courses, podcasts, wherever we're at, and you were to start over, but with your knowledge right now, what sort of online niche would you be getting into?
0: Based on my qualifications? Or just as a startup, like a starting out. I
1: would say based on your experience and your bird's eye view of the online space, but not necessarily your direct skill set.
0: Probably, I like this niche and I just don't have time to deal with it right now. But entrepreneurs in our space are so infatuated with the top line. You might actually be in this, based on what I know about you, you might already be in this niche. I'll probably go after being able to turn your active income into passive income and bulletproof build. Everybody's trying to build a really tall tree. But what if you could just forget about the, the height of the tree for a second and you could build a really deep root system? And I would probably go after that because the entrepreneurs that I know today that make a good amount of money just don't know what to do with the money. And there's going to come a day when their business isn't going to perform like it is right now. So it, I would anchor into that fear. Because the fear of the unknown is the most powerful fear there is because you can invent your own threats. If you have a market where it's like the fear is very ambiguous like that, then you can, from a marketing standpoint, you can invent anything you want and it'll fit. But the idea that you're, that business is not always going to be this way and COVID was just an example. But there's another one coming and there's another one coming. And you want to make sure that your income is diversified to a place where a storm can come and your root systems are deep enough that you're not affected by it. Now I'll probably go into like wealth building, wealth management for entrepreneurs. Wealth building for online entrepreneurs. I love that.
1: And that's you hit the nail on the head. That's something that, you know, I've I've had, and this is just like a personal vulnerable thing. I've had this, I don't know, this like mindset shift of I have a skill set in real estate and building passive income and building wealth. And then I look at online entrepreneurs and I think to myself, man, should I? completely change that shift or should I tap into that and help them build, you know, they're interested in what I'm doing. I'm interested in what they're doing. It's kind of like a grass is greener thing. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And that was a hundred percent a selfish question on my part, which, Hey, it's my podcast. I can, All go good, bro. I can do what I want. <laughs> You've earned the right. Yeah, man. So uh, very cool. I-, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. And that brings me into sort of our next phase of, of the podcast. And that is what you're doing in real estate. And so tell me, like, what was that like turning moment for you to think to yourself, man, we have a, a seven figure, eight figure online business? We need to preserve this wealth. And how did that come about?
0: Yeah, man, it was like everything else is kind of a, a metamorphosis where there were a lot of different things that pushed us into it. We got a massive tax bill and like we didn't want to pay it, but we did because we didn't want to go to jail. You know, it's like comparatively, I'd rather pay the tax bill than go to jail there's got to be a way we can find a loophole or something or like be a better steward of the surplus. So we got into like this partnership with the guy in Texas and my background being in real estate, I kind of knew the game, but I didn't have time to go out and find my own deals and do all those things. And I didn't want to. So we ended up partnering with this guy. We sent uh, a quarter million dollars as an investment and uh, they completely mismanaged it. Mm. And I was like, you guys are so stupid. Give me the money back. Like, we're not, we're not doing another term. They missed every deadline they set. And uh I was like, you know, we we feel like this is just good business. Like this is just what's normal. But I think our standards are not necessarily normal standards. What's normal for us is like stratospheres above for normal business. So it's like we might be in a position where we need to start our own things. So we just went for it, we assembled a team. And we had to make the decision up front. Are we going to do multifamily? Are we going to single family, commercial? Like this is all real estate. It's wide. Like, what do you want to do? And I knew single family. And I also knew that if we're looking at risk mitigation in everything that could go wrong, we should start small. And the reason we got into single family was because I didn't want to start with the $7 million complex or, you know, an $80 million multifamily unit. I wanted to start small. And build the team as we went and control the game. And so we did research. We picked three markets. Now we're up to four markets. And as we got into it, and I won't go into everything right now, but we can meet offline and we can talk more about it. But as we got into it, what we realized was that there were things that we could do to control the the cost of the properties via supply and demand and boots on the ground. And so we went out, we actually built teams. So we have a team in... Kansas City, Missouri. We have a team in Birmingham, Alabama. We have a team in Charlotte, North Carolina, Branson, Missouri, and a starter team that's getting ready to go in Knoxville, Tennessee. And what I wanted to do is we wanted to protect our downside but maximize the upside. And there's this new thing. It's not new probably to us, but it's new to most investors, and it's called nightly rentals. Airbnb didn't make wasn't around in 2008. So nobody knew at the time how Airbnb and BRBO – was going to react to a recession. So we ended up building this this formula for 70% of our houses are in long-term markets, 30% of our houses are in short-term nightly rentals like an Airbnb or VRBO. And the reason we came up with that equation is if we have a winter, if we have a recession, then we can lose money on the vacation rentals and not lose money on the portfolio. Mm-hmm. But if we have a spring, or a good season, the upside of the vacation rentals maximizes and compounds the the long term. And so we put together this portfolio, and the portfolio right now is you know like 19%. We're still getting vacation nights booked and our long term we collected 88% of rent through COVID. And I, I do feel like the challenge is gonna be this fall. Like we're still in for it a little bit. But the way that we buy houses and the grids that we use and everything, we have so many hedges built into the machine and we're diversified between zip codes, we're diversified amongst cities, we're diversified between asset classes via the long-term and the short-term. And if you really look at it, it's like, dude, my number one thing is I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose money. And so that is a driving ethos for the another reason why we put it together on our own because if we don't control it you know I can't really I can't see how the money's being used okay. clients found out about it now we offer uh, deals to our clientele as well the way that works is sometimes we'll have you know somebody will pick up 11 houses in Kansas City it's like we only need 11 houses in Kansas City right now this month we're on pace to buy 25 ish properties and um, we'll get rid of houses to diversify and balance the portfolio just like you would a stock market So the houses that we don't want, not because they're bad houses, but because we have like too many in St. Joe, Missouri, or too many in Charlotte or whatever, we make those available to our clientele. Similar to what a turnkey company would do, the difference is these things do 14% cash on cash and they're better houses. I worked at a turnkey company, so I know all the ins and outs. And most of them are just like maximize the bottom line. That's all they care about. So we're kind of like a hybrid turnkey, but Turkey is definitely not the priority. You know what I mean?
1: So correct me if I'm wrong. What I'm understanding out of this is, is it the same business partner from TNF Traffic and Funnels? Yep. Okay. So you, and I'm sure there could be a whole nother podcast on how to execute a strong partnership, but not for this show. So WealthCap Holdings is your fund with Chris, your partner, correct?
0: It's technically not a fund. Oh. We have WealthCap Fund and WealthCap okay. Holdings. So the fund is the SEC thing and it can't have debt. So... Holdings has debt. That's, that's our houses that we have and we leverage everything. The fund buys everything in cash and does the renovations. And we have our own money in there. We have investor money in there and things like that. Okay. And when you go to balance the portfolio and you sell off, they're still
1: high performing, but I would assume you sell off less performing. That's when you sell off to your investors. But do you keep, when you said the 19%, you keep the majority of them for, for you and Chris and the holdings company?
0: Yep. Yep. So everything is purchased through one business, mm-hmm. and we do all the renovations. And then when we're done with it, we'll move it into another business, and we'll yeah. hang on to it. Yeah.
1: You purchase through your personal fund. You move it to your holdings company. Then when you go to balance it, you sell it to your investors, who you have a waitlist at wealthcapholdings.com.
0: I think yeah. Wealth, Wealthcapholdings.com/slash/waitlist It's probably the waitlist. Love it. So yeah. Then we'll we'll balance and we'll get rid of. You know, some months we'll get rid of. Seven or eight. Some months we get, you know, last month we only got rid of two.
1: Two things that you're doing here that is very new age that I've heard of people doing one or the other, but I've never heard of them doing both. And so essentially you've built like this acquisitions business that focuses on single family, but you split 70 30 between long term and short term. Then you go to balance that portfolio. And when you go to balance it, you monetize the lesser performing by still giving high performing assets to your investors. It's beautiful. Don't tell anybody. I love it, man. I love it. That's brilliant. So what is like your goal with the wealth cap? Do you think that eventually you're going to go into a different asset class? Or do you love the single family model? I mean, what's like your five year goal with this? I mean, really three businesses actually with that?
0: Uh, dude, I would love to go into different asset classes the way we're wired is like, we'll set a goal and then we'll just hit the goal before we change anything. So we want to add 20 million to the portfolio this year. I think we'll do that. And the number I have in my head is around 50 to 60 million in the holdings portfolio. Now, you know, we're getting around some of the lesser attractive parts of single family by having a lot of money. You can buy your way out of a lot of the problems with single family, you know, they talk about multifamily, the advantages is it's one loan, it's one roof, it's like, it's just easy. What we're doing is we're buying 10 houses at a time, and then we'll portfolio loan them, like just a block of houses, right? And so it's essentially kind of like, we're taking 10 single families, and we're turning it into a 10 unit, you know, like a, a small multi, right? That said, I definitely want to get into smaller multis, and I want to get into some sort of, you know, commercial storage, I think we'll We'll also probably buy a building in Nashville for our team to work out of. We'll likely buy a building in Charlotte for the same reason. We have a couple team members in Charlotte right now, and we're actually starting a publishing company, and we'll staff everyone for that in Charlotte. So real estate is just one of the you know, storage mechanisms that we use. We have another holding company for businesses, and so we'll acquire 25% of a business, and We'll triple that business. And so it pays for itself. And then we have that equity stored in a different holdings company. So I think at some point we'll probably expand asset classes. The challenge I have is there's so much going on that I'm like, let's just hit the goal first and then maybe partner with some people. So I do, I still think we should, we wanna do partnerships in the real estate game. You know, you find a multi, it's a great one. I check it out. Man, let's go in on this together. I think that there are opportunities for us there. Once we kind of get through the growing pains of getting to 40 single families a month, like there's a lot that goes into that. You know what I mean? What's like
1: your lead generation for acquiring the single families? Are you buying them off the MLS? Is it off market? What's your avenues for for acquisitions?
0: We've had to build that out. And we kind of have a hybrid between what would be like a traditional, like a deal finder type system where we have drivers and, we have a couple of agents in the market and they just submit deals to us and it goes into our CRM and we have all of the things that we need. So what's the what's the purchase price? What's the estimated rehab budget? What's the rent range? Obviously, bedroom, bath, square footage. And then what's the estimated ARB? And so this will populate every day and we just have an in-house team that will look at it. And if we like it, it will, we'll send boots on the ground or we'll get further details. One of the other things that we're doing in-house, which is unique. And I don't know if it will work yet, but I can report back and it would be another new age type strategy is just specialists in-house that coordinate with deal finders and just make cold calls to not tax liens, but just any house that they think is, is a good deal. So like five or six specialists making a hundred calls a day, it's a lot of work. But if we can get even 1% of those to come through, we're finding a lot of equity that nobody else can find.
1: You know, so in the real estate space, what you just mentioned—that new age tactic—that's actually what exactly what I do full time. Uh, that's my company. Help us out, bro. Yeah, there and we go. So, just this isn't being brutally honest or anything. It's it's not new age, but for internet marketers, they might not be familiar with it. But there are acquisitions teams, wholesale operations nationwide that are are running operations like that. And I'd be happy to chat offline another time and share all about that. Yeah. Without a doubt. A couple of things that that you hit on that I absolutely love is hitting your goal before you start thinking about like what's next, like maybe having that seed in your mind. But I'm actually infatuated by self-storage and mobile home parks and, and where that's going towards the future. So that's another thing we could for sure talk about. But let's move on. Before we get to the fan questions, I'm very, very curious because you've built up multiple businesses, you're a young guy, uber successful. What's like your top one or two things when it comes to honing in and leveraging through people? When you hit that goal, replacing and leveraging through people, like what is something that uh, just really stands out to you for being able to be successful at that?
0: I want to train them... Most of the world trains people how to do work. That's the traditional, hey, hire some, hire a VA, hire someone who can do things for you. Most of, most of the business world monetizes people's hands, right? And what, what we've tried to do is monetize people's brains. Don't teach them how to do work. Teach them how to think. Don't outsource your calendar. Outsource the decisions with the calendar. It's a very different level of training. And so when it comes to people, that's what we've tried to do. And most of the coaching that I do with the team has nothing to do with how to do their job better. It has everything to do with how to think better, how to optimize their own vision, their own goals. And I think that we've built the culture that what's best for the the company is best for the individual. We've tied those up to the same pole. Whereas most corporate organizations, there's almost like a war between what's best for me versus what's best for the company. And what I want is people to come in. I don't want to cap their income. I want them to have a big vision. I'm not intimidated by somebody saying they want to make a million dollars a year. It's not intimidating to me. I'm a secure leader. Like if somebody says that, I'm like, let's, let's sit down and build a plan for you to get to a million dollars a year. Because if you earn a million dollars a year here, holy shit, I'm earning $15 million a year. You know, like we are on the same team. There's no wars happening but first and foremost, if I can equip you have to think like I think, then I can just set the goal and get out of the way. If you only know how to do work, it's going to fail eventually.
1: Beautiful, beautiful.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: For more from Chris and Taylor, visit
0: TrafficAndFunnels.com and get a free gift just for being a subscriber. That's TrafficAndFunnels.com.